Hello, this is Tim Watton. That's Cotton with a W. Welcome to The Gift Podcast, which focuses on the power of the mind and being more present in the moment to overcome life and health challenges, which helps to bring more resilience, calm, and joy. I'm super delighted to introduce a friend of mine who I've met five years ago. His name is Jack Binstead. Jack, hello. Any... hello. Hi, how are you doing? Very well, thank you. Jack is an English actor, comedian, and retired Paralympic athlete who is known for starring as Rem Dog in BBC's Bad Education series. He's also become a dad recently, which we're going to get dive into. All this by 22, while overcoming the debilitating brittle bone disease. Jack has learnt many valuable lessons dealing with adversity, stress and negativity. And I'm keen to tap into his insights, both for myself, but also for my listeners. Jack and I first met five years ago while we recorded a podcast for the BBC, their Ouch series. And we walked together along Regent Street um, back to Oxford Circus. And he's a thoroughly decent, good, good bloke who's learned a lot about life. And that's why he's going to be a great guest for me. So, my friend, um, just for people who may not understand brittle bone disease, just give a, 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 an easy to understand synopsis for people. Yeah, sure. Um, great intro, by the way. You should write my Wikipedia because that was, that was incredible. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, brittle bones is very self-explanatory in the sense that my bones are weaker than normal. They break easier. Uh, unfortunately, my daughter does have the same disability, so I'm able to I'm having to go through it twice, which isn't the nicest thing. But uh, it's it's a lack of a protein called collagen, which essentially makes them weaker, more vulnerable to fractures and breaks. Okay, now when were you diagnosed with that? Was it evident from birth? It it was evident if you knew what you was looking for, which unfortunately they weren't. Um, I didn't actually break any bones through, uh, through being born, but I did break some bones very early on within, within a couple of weeks of being born. And uh, unfortunately, there was a good year-long case where my parents were accused of child abuse and I was threatened to be in and out of care. Um, eventually, they, they did find a diagnosis um, uh, the, the, the diagnosis being brittle bones when I was about one years old. So there was a good year where my parents were in limbo, not knowing why, and the doctors not knowing what was going on. And that just sounds awful for them. You know, certainly the the idea that they would be um, put on the spot for not being worthy parents or or hurting you. Of course, you know, they're very lovely parents. They always have been. They were very, very kind people, and I. I truly owe them for you know going through so much in order for me to be the person that I am today but yeah I can't imagine how difficult that was for them uh being accused of something that you know they definitely were not um part of and I mean my illness cystic fibrosis a genetic condition both my mum and dad were carriers is that similar for brittle bone um, my, we have done some genetic testing over the years. I believe that it come from my dad's side of the family. 
Um, but both my parents don't have the disability themselves. Um, so there can be new mutations of genes that appear. Uh, and that seems to sort of be the case with, with myself. Okay. Now, explain to listeners um, what historically you've done medical-wise, treatment-wise each day, um, or what that looks like to try and um, keep your bones as strong as possible. Yeah, um, it's very simple, really. There isn't too much for brittle bones, unfortunately. Um, I've broken 80, I believe 86 times, not including small fractures. I'd probably be well over 100 if I was to include little rib fractures as such. But um, I started treatment when I was about nine years old. Uh, the treatment's called promidronate, which is um, creates artificial collagen for the bones and you can see that present in x-rays as rings that form around the bones to cause uh, to, to sort of act as that protection. Um, I started promidronate when I was about nine years old uh, intravenously and it was almost like a guinea pig for the treatment as well because it, it only just rolled out within the NHS at that point. Um, and about 15 years old, I switched to the tablet version of that, which is called Residronate, uh, which is a lot easier to maintain and handle. It's one tablet per week. Yep. That's what I still take now. Uh, whereas Promidronate is intravenous. It takes three days and a couple of hours to go into your system per day. So it's a little bit more tasking. And when I was going through school, it set me back a little bit, having those three days out every six weeks or two months, whatever it was. Um, but right now I'm taking a tablet form, which is a lot more manageable. Okay. Now, what might be something about having or dealing with brittle bone disease that few people ever realise? Um, there's a lot that comes with having brittle bones that sort of maybe isn't clear. Or maybe people don't realise. I mean, I developed scoliosis uh, through fracturing my spine when I was a kid. So that's another problem that I've... Uh, had to deal with over the years through my existing disability. So sometimes I get quite bad uh, backache. Uh, I can't really sit in the same position for too long, which gets quite annoying. Um, I suffer quite badly in the heat. So part of having brittle bones and having no collagen within the body is that you do overheat. Um, so, you know, especially with the summer that we've had, I've struggled quite a lot with that. You know, it, it, it could. most people are out in hoodies and, and it's a little bit windy and I'm overheating and need to take a minute because it's, it's uh, incredibly warm for me personally. And then the flip side of that as well in the winter, uh, I don't suffer with this too much. I, now I'm an, an, an adult, but more as a kid. But when it's extremely cold, that can also uh, cause the bones to break because it just because it's cold. Um, and I've got metal work running through my, uh, my legs. And so in some cases, when it's sort of sub-zero, you know, you can actually feel the metal in your legs and that can be quite painful as well. And, and so there's, there's little things like that to do with temperature and, and uh, aches and pains that people don't normally just assume is the case. Okay. But it does sound like pain has been a, a consistent part of your life. Yeah, it has been a consistent part of my life, unfortunately. I, I mean, I, I've... Um, I have suffered you know, with my mental health as an adult as a result of my childhood and it's something that I've only realised actually relatively recently um, but I, I've blocked out a large amount of my life before the age of about 10 and I've done that just naturally and there are a few small things that I remember certain moments on holiday you know 
certain moments within my schooling. But then other things that I remember being young is the pain that I went through and that and there are certain, you know, situations which I wish I could forget and I just can't. So pain has been a very prominent feature in my life. Fortunately, a lot less as I've become an adult, I've become stronger. Um, but it has scarred me in many ways. And um, this is something that I have to live with now. Yeah. And that pain, as you've just alluded to, Jack, is both physical and the mental despair. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, as a kid, I would have gone straight down the the, uh, the physical pain route. I mean, as a kid, I didn't suffer too much with, uh, with with my mental health because, I, like I said, I had a very positive structure around me. I had great parents, great friends, a great carer who looked after me when I was in school. I liked where I lived. I had good friends. And I had great prospects. And, and so uh, around my disability and around the temporary pain that I went through, I had a great life. I had a great life. And so... It, it definitely helped being in that environment to not suffer with my mental health. But as an adult, especially having a child who's also going to go through similar aspects of your own childhood, mm. it really does open up a new can of worms because you then start to remember notions about your childhood that you wish you'd forget. Ah, uh, yes. I, yeah, I mean, that's... <laughs> It's uh, the yin and yang of becoming a dad there for you, Jack. It is. It is, 100%. Now, what do you say um, succinctly you've learned about overcoming this hardship throughout your life? And I suppose, like I, I've had to do, is embrace uncertainty. Because most people that, you, that we come across, you know, they don't really have to deal with much uncertainty. Life's going to trickle along. But yeah. they're on autopilot and waste could waste time and not appreciate the small things. So what have you learned about how you've overcome this hardship? It's funny because I was actually speaking to my fiance last night about this in a sort of similar manner. But it's what I've learned is that the words, um, it'll get better. Those, those very simple, possibly meaningful and motivational words there are words that I despise, it will get better. Because, you know, as a child, I would break a leg and I'd be rushed to hospital to have some sort of treatment or plaster cast, possibly some surgery. And my parents, the doctors, the physios, they would all come and tell me that it'll, it'll be okay. It'll be all right. And I believe that as a child, I believe that it'll be all right. And then three months down the line, I'll break my arm. And I'm back in hospital with them telling me that it will be okay. And the fact that you have to tell me that again means the last time you said it hasn't come true. It hasn't been all right because I'm back here now. And so I was constantly told those words as a child to the point where I didn't believe it because I knew I would break again. And people around me know that I'm going to break again. My own parents knew what I was in for. The doctors knew that I was going to keep breaking. But the fact they kept saying it was just them trying to be motivational and trying to be positive around, you know, their distressed child. And as, as a father to a daughter with this disability, you know, we, she's broken five times in the nine months that she is. And every single time my fiance said to me, you know, it'll be okay. This pain is temporary. And these words hurt me more now as a father of someone with this disability because I know it won't be. I know that she will break again. And so it's also it's a matter of sort of 
having to be present in the negative situation in order to feel okay. It's almost like being a real, you know, being a follower of realism. You know, realism is is something that I um, absorb because when you're when you're realistic about a situation, it doesn't always mean that you're positive. It doesn't always mean that you're negative. It just means that you're dealing with the situation as it is in the moment, and that's yeah. how I've managed to get through, you know, situations in my life. It's just sort of by being realistic. Yeah. So you've accepted it, and then you realistic with the the goods and the no, the bads and the goods. Yeah, yeah. It'd be real. It'd be unrealistic of me to turn around to my daughter and say. Oh, uh, it'll, it'll be okay. This won't happen again, you know, yeah, because yeah. it will. And that's not something that I'm ever going to tell her, but I'm also not going to just flat out scare her and make her feel like her life is doomed because that also isn't the case. I've, I've, had, I've lived a very great life. And okay. um, yeah. it's a matter of finding a balance between the two, really. Now, excuse this ignorant question, but if I'm asking it so others may think it, when you have a break, would it be set um, or help to be mended in the normal way that someone like myself would or is it very different for you um well uh, it's hard to answer that question because i don't know how far different it is because i've, I've got this disability so i've sure. really got, really got a, a one-sided answer to that and that's how i deal with it and how it's been dealt with for me so possibly the viewers can relate to it in their own circumstances but um yeah i, I do believe it's kind of similar i mean when i broke in the past um I, i've been you know, I guess unfortunate, but fortunate in some ways to get to know the nurses and doctors of my local hospital rather well. And so when it comes down to me breaking as a kid, we had a direct number. We didn't have to go through the whole six hours of sitting in an A&E waiting for someone to come and tell me what I already know. I almost had a bed with my own name on it. So it was a very quick, fast track process of getting through. Um, and they sort of just knew what it was about. We did the x-ray. And if it was something rather minor, like a, just a slight fracture, It'd be a simple plaster cast, off you go, same as any other child. Mm. If it was something more severe, which there was a, more of a chance of it being, being that the bones would break easier anyway, um, then yeah, you know, it was. I've got titanium rods, as I mentioned earlier, running from my femur to my ankles and both legs. And I've had them replaced as I've grown taller, um, probably three or four times in both legs. And so that's not something that the average person has when they break, sure. um, it, it, of course, it is available to someone who's fractured themselves, you know, in an extreme way without having this disability, but it's less common that that is happening for you. So I don't believe that it's too far different. I just believe that I've been through some of the more extreme cases more often than normal. Yeah, I suppose when you talk about uh, the titanium rods, I'm automatically thinking of the horror crashes that motorcyclists would go through and the way they're exactly. put back together again. And, and that then paints a picture for me for, for you and, and how severe it gets. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, people, people who have been in car crashes, fallen off from, fallen from great heights, motorbike crashes, they, they have titanium rods and bolts and plates and screws. And, uh, you know, I remember being 10 years old and just bouncing about a foot or two off the trampoline on my bum. And just completely snapping my entire left femur and needing titanium rods and plates put through it. And that was me yeah. jumping on a trampoline about two feet in the air. So there's a big difference between that and a motorcycle crash. So, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Now, very sadly, um, where both are conditions, my cystic fibrosis and your brittle bone disease, um, we've, lost mutual, we've lost friends, haven't we? 
along yes. the way and yes. each time they go um it takes a bit of us with with them but at the same time i suppose my mechanism to deal with that is to continue in their memory give me more fortitude to push on how have you dealt with the loss of um people you've got to know both in england and around the world with brittle bone disease yeah no it's it's, it's definitely a very tricky one um uh, fortunately brittle bones isn't in itself uh, a, a disability or a condition which uh shortens your life but i've definitely lost some friends um through certain situations accidents perhaps which normally wouldn't take the life of, of someone that it has in 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 the case of someone with brittle bones and it's you know it's it is sad it's tough to deal with because you lose one of your own really and then that's never nice across any circumstances um but like you said you know you do live on in their memory um you know you you do you, you sort of appreciate your own life you appreciate what you've got you don't you know hang around the balance of what you don't you know a lot of people with all sorts of disabilities they sit there and they wish they could do this and they wish they could do that and it's again like you said earlier it's almost like being an autopilot it's like being a standby because you don't actually progress forward when you sit there and wish for the things that you know you can't do if you strive for the things that you can do and you achieve that's living on their memory that's being positive and that's sort of being a you know a positive role model within someone with this disability now Counterintuitively, um, certainly for both of us, doing exercise, um, weights, being athletes, isn't what people would automatically think would happen. Certainly with my poor lungs uh, and you struggling with your bone fractures and um, breaks. But you, um, to your utter credit, were, are an athlete. I'm going to keep using that as the present tense because I've seen you in the gym still. <laughs> you were a, a GB Paralympic uh, uh, athlete. So can you um, explain the transformation there for yourself? Yeah, no, I, it was uh, almost accidental me getting into the sport. But I was about nine years old and I was this incredibly chubby, weak <laughs> kid in a wheelchair. Uh, and I, I'd always been fairly good at sports when I was in school. Um, and I, I went for every sport, whatever it was, whether it was football, netball, cricket. I always had a go and I really enjoyed having a go at these sports. But um, I, was, I was invited to a sports morning uh, via my local council. Uh, attended, had a go at a few different sports. And from there, I was drafted towards um, a coach, a team for wheelchair racing. So I gave it a go. And there's a lot of um and ah and really because... I wasn't sure, my parents weren't sure if me, you know, doing the sport would just break my bones naturally. And that was a risk that we did take. But um, very, very quickly, I got into the sport. I found that I had some strength within me physically. You know, I had some muscles from pushing the wheelchair. So I put them to work and, and just gained on that, really. And it only took me a few months of training before I started to compete. Um, way younger than I should have been. I think the minimum age was about 12 across competitions, and I was nine. And I was okay. beating the kids that were 12, 13. So there was an element to what I was doing where I, I sort of realized, okay, this could be something, you know, great. This could be. So I continued um, year in, year out, uh, and sort of got stronger and got fitter and, you know, um, worked on my technique and met people, trained me even harder, increased my schedule. 
And um, and then yeah, when I was about fifteen, sixteen, I was I was Team GB. And you um, went abroad to compete. Yeah, I travelled. I, I travelled around Europe a little bit. I did a lot of competing over in Switzerland because um, the, the Swiss have the best tracks in the world, as far as I'm concerned. They're very, very fast tracks to race on. Um, but yeah, no, I, I definitely competing abroad. I had a lot of fun with that. Good man. Um, and um, it, when I was a young lad, in my fifteen. 16, I represented England out in Germany in a uh, hockey junior, you know, field hockey competition. And it, it feels amazing, doesn't it, to hear the anthem, to represent your nation. Um, how did that feel for you? No, it was, it was definitely an incredibly proud moment for me. Uh, oh, can you still hear me? Yeah. You're still there? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, a very, very proud moment for me. It was everything that I'd worked towards. Um, and I, I was very grateful to be in that situation, despite what I, I'd been through. I didn't expect it in a million years before I started training for it and believing that it was possible. Yeah, and anything just inherently that takes your mind off your woes is, is helpful, isn't it? Yes, yeah. No, it definitely for both of us, me... we could all just sit at home and panic and fret, but actually being, having your mind taken off things and concentrating on something that's bigger than yourself is absolutely uh, integral to overcoming both mentally and physically. Yeah, I, I do. Um, I do put a lot of, of, of who I am now and, and, and the, my, a lot of my personality and how I am now is a result of the years that I spent as an athlete because it did change me um, into a more positive person. Um, you know, I did have quite a lot of negative connotations that I carried with me from being a child. And I lost a lot of that when I became an adult, uh, well, sorry, became an athlete because I realized that they weren't true because I was here competing and I was here training, uh, uh, you know, on the road doing 15 miles at 7am on a Saturday morning. I was doing that. So it, yeah. it proved a lot to me that I could do things I had never actually anticipated doing and that was a big part of of me becoming who i am today now you're also very well known um because you've had a, such an amazing life um as rem dog on bbc's series <laughs> bad education um i actually don't know how you made the leap between uh a gb paralympic athlete to um becoming uh, an actor you sound like a jack of many trades. <laughs> yeah, no. I, I was I, waiting I, to put that line in. I thought I've got to, I've got to add that in. You, surely. You was that that was underlined on a piece of paper in your desk. Yeah, jack of many trades, master of many as well. There we go. <laughs> um. So I I got into acting uh, before I sort of became Team GBB when I was about twelve, perhaps. Um. I was in training for the London Junior Marathon, uh, an event that was sort of probably the biggest of the of the of the year when you're that age. Um, and about five days beforehand, I completely shattered my tibia and fibula on my right leg, oh. and was told, "No, you can't compete." You know, an entire winter's training had gone down the drain. Um, and I was absolutely gutted and I was just so determined to compete that I 
made them put a half back slab as opposed to a full plaster cast on my leg. Took a couple of paracetamol. And then the night before the race, I got it back into my racing chair to see if I could actually sit in it. Um, and the next day, I competed in the race. And, and despite the fracture, had, had the plaster cast on my leg. So it was a little bit extra weight to carry with me. But I trained for this and trained with extra weight on me uh, just in case something like this happened. Um, and uh, my father, actually, my, my dad, Graham, he... Uh, he cycled along the entire route on a bike just in case I had to pull out midway. He could come mm. and grab me. And, it, and he said to me, he said a couple of miles in, he said he lost me. He didn't know where I was. And he, so he went back thinking that I'd stopped very early on and then ended up getting a phone call that I'd come first and I was a couple of miles ahead of him. Um, and I actually won the race and, and set a new record and set my own personal records despite having the fracture. Wow, good um, Through... Through doing that, I was picked up by Paul O'Grady and I was asked to go on his show and I became one of the Paul O'Grady kids as such. And I appeared on the show about five or six times across 18 months, did a little bit of an appearance, had a couple of lines uh, and got an agent through that. So I was now part of this very accredited um, acting agency, uh, Louise Dyson at Visible. And it was, it, you know, it was fun to be part of something like that. I didn't really have too many expectations i didn't know what to expect whatsoever i'd never in my life you know gone for being an actor i never did any sort of drama classes or anything like that but i thought i'd give it a go you can't hurt it's you know i'm all about trying new things at least once and, and seeing what happens um and then yeah bad education was uh, an audition that i went for when i was about 13 years old um and provisionally got the part um as as Remdog. And unfortunately I went through a bit of a bad time when I was about fourteen years old and I was out of action for about six months. I was mm -hmm. in and out of hospital with having surgery. One of my surgeries failed and it left me worse off. Okay. Um yeah. and so I actually for about sixteen weeks they re auditioned the part to give to someone else and then came back to me and said actually we're gonna we're gonna keep it and keep you as the as the role once I recovered. So I was about fifteen years old when I started the show. So a good two years after the first audition, but uh, the show just completely took off. Really, you know, first episode that we ever did um, back in I think it was two thousand and thirteen, two thousand and twelve, perhaps. Um, it uh, it just took off. It was the most viewed BBC comedy ever within the first episode, uh, and it just grew from there. Really. So for those, I mean, I'm aware of it, but for those that aren't, um, what's a brief summary of bad education? So Jack Whitehall, uh, the comedian, is the writer and the master behind the entire series. And he plays our teacher, our geography teacher, Mr. Wickers. Um, and I am one of his pupils in his classroom uh, who gets up to all sorts of mischief, all sorts of, of, uh, of wrongdoings, shall we say. Um, and it's, it's all about following the life of us kids in school and, and the craziness that Mr. Wickers uh, finds himself on. We always find ourselves to be part of whatever he's up to and trying to get him out of sticky situations. Okay. Now, it was a workplace of sorts because, of course, yes, you're in front of the, the uh, camera, but outside of that, you're waiting around and this is my what I've seen or witnessed uh, or heard. Now, it is the workplace still. Um, I'm 
conscious of the fact that you in a lifetime of working in any environment you're going to have a different people will react to you in different ways with a disability mine's yes. largely unseen um or invisible um therefore they think i look well so when i frame to them that i'm not so well they struggle to understand now you, you're inherently in the wheelchair so they can see <laughs> that uh, there's something not right but do you do you feel that you've encountered both good and poor understanding of what you need to help you um i have struggled um you know in, in many cases um with sort of getting work and people understanding my disability whilst at work um the acting industry itself is is quite um an easy place to be if you are disabled because they are very there, there are roles specific to someone with a disability so you know when you go into that audition room you're going for a role they've already looked like they've already accepted they're looking for someone in a chair so you're able to to you know it's not even using what you've got to your own strengths it's just be you being you and not having to worry about pretending to be someone else and someone that you're not um but I mean, I definitely, and I think this is the case for a lot of disabled people, have found that people look at you differently, treat you differently. I've definitely been, um, I've definitely not got certain jobs in my life and certain roles and, and because I am disabled. Um, and, and they'll never admit that to you. They'll never admit that, you know, the wheelchair is the problem or the fault. Um, but you know that it is. You know that they don't want to tell you that. Um, and, it, you know, again it comes back down to the realism of it you know i could sit there and, and mope around and accept that things aren't going to happen for me in my life because of this disability or i can start going for opportunities in my life that do cater um and then it comes more down to who you are and your personality as opposed to what disability you've got and what level of health you have yes and um you know, it's very sad, but in my situation, I've never ever been offered one job when I've owned up about my cystic fibrosis in the job interview process. Right. So a different, you know, both have our challenges, Jack, don't we? But in different ways. Of course. Yeah. Of course. Now, we've sort of touched on it earlier, but one thing that I know you're going to really help my listeners with is what you've learned about the power of the mind. Um, so how would you frame that? Maybe from your earlier days uh, to what where you are now with your mental approach. Um, yeah, no, it's it's probably the the sort of the biggest question of them all. Really, is sort of the power of the mind and mental health because it's such a, a taboo subject for many people, and it's also a very prominent feature in a lot of people's lives, uh, especially in a, a you know a day and age like today. Um, as a kid, I, like I mentioned earlier, as a kid, I was just quite a happy-go-lucky child who didn't really ponder upon the future. Um, and the reason I didn't ponder upon the future was because I was very uncertain about my own future. So I didn't really speculate what would be and what could be. One thing that I, as an adult, I look back on from when I was a child and know for a fact that I'm not going to allow my daughter to go through the same thing. And I'm perhaps with your cystic fibrosis, this was something similar for you, but when it came down to having goals and aspirations, when it came down to having dreams or, you know, 
potential far-fetched job job prospects like being an astronaut or you know being a policeman being a fireman you know i had no dream profession as a child mm. um i had no relevant role model in my life apart from perhaps a family member who i looked up to you know i'm very close to my dad um but when i was a kid my my role model the person i aspired to be was david beckham and when you're in a wheelchair with brittle bones you can't play football <laughs> you can't be a football star yeah so why am i aspiring to somebody as a six-year-old why am i aspiring to somebody who i will never be anything like and the reason for that was because as a child i felt that there wasn't anyone out there who i could aspire to that i feel i could relate to in any sort of way sure. i aspired to dave beckham because i supported man united and he played with them at the time and so that was very much the link but, oh you're so you know, jack we, jack you're another person that lives in the south of england that supports man united i i'm gonna be honest with you i supported them when i was a child and then when beckham left so did i ah <laughs> are you you're not you don't support them anymore I, I'm not really a football fan, if I'm honest with you. As I got older, I lost a lot of interest in football and don't support a team, really, apart from England. Okay. But, um, yeah, no, I'm well, not a huge better, football fan. That's fine. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so yeah, speak about your role models and, and yeah, your dreams. Yeah, so I, 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 you know, when I was a kid, you know, you, you don't aspire to, you know, perhaps there are kids out there that do, and that's fantastic if you do, but you don't aspire to Stephen Hawkins too much when you're six. You don't really aspire to Warwick Davis unless you know you want to be an actor. Mm. You don't really aspire to Tandy Gray Thompson unless you know that you want to be a Paralympian. And when I was six, I was constantly told by the people around me that I couldn't do this and couldn't do that. You can't be a policeman because you're in a chair. You can't be a fireman because you can't climb a ladder. You can't be an astronaut because your wheelchair can't go to space. So yeah. you start... You, you listen to all of the things that you can't do and you sit there and you go, well, I still have no idea what I can do despite you narrowing it down for me. And so that was it for me as a kid. That's why I took on every opportunity that I was presented with, like acting, like comedy, like athletics, because these were things that I was never told I couldn't do, but I also was told I could do. And so for my daughter especially, I want her to know growing up that you can do this and you can do that. I'm not going to tell her that she can be a fireman because perhaps she can't be. Perhaps she will be. I've got no idea. Perhaps she'll be stronger than me and won't need a wheelchair. In which case, if it's something doable, you go get it. You do that. You become exactly who you want to be. But I'm not going to sell her false dreams. So I'm also not going to set her back. She can be whatever she wants to be. And she will be whatever she wants to be because she's going to be a very, very independent uh, woman when she grows up. And that's exactly how I want to raise her. Um, but for me, yeah, as a kid, I was told a lot about what I couldn't do and that did affect me in many ways. And as an adult, you know, I, I remember being 18 years old, um, looking for new acting opportunities uh, and contemplating having to get, you know, very standard nine to five work to help me get by outside of the acting industry, not knowing what I could do over the new sort of very basic office work. And I don't think that's fair, you know, to know that you're limited to, to sort of just office work. You know, no one wants to aspire towards office work. But if that's all you feel you've got, that's what you go for. And I don't believe that that's what any of us with disabilities are limited to. No, but, but I get the sense uh, and strongly believe that your daughter won't have to look too far for her role model 
because she's got one as a dad. Well, that that's <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, I I do hope that's the case. You know, that's exactly you know what I hope happens when she grows up. I want her to look at me as a positive role model in her life, um, and and she can look for me look to me for guidance and advice as she grows up. But I mean, I I that's part of you know what I was mentioning earlier about not feeling like I had a positive role model who I could relate to in any shape or form as a child and so when I became an athlete and I started doing well and started competing started showing other people disabilities that you can do this when I became an actor and I was one of the only actors on British TV in a wheelchair at the time um, doing what I was doing whenever I go to a, a comedy gig to do a gig you know a very often I'm the only person with disability on the stage at that one time at that gig. Mm. So I, I ended up realizing that if I, you know, perhaps I don't have a role model, but that doesn't mean that I can't be a role model for others. And I'm very fortunate to have had kids come up to me in the street with disabilities with their parents and, and tell me that I'm their role model when they've got posters of me on their wall and they've, you know, I've signed autograph books for them and, and, and hoodies. And, and, you know, I'm very, very fortunate to be in this position in my life. And, and I'm incredibly humbled that I've managed to become the role model for others and aspire them. That means more than having my own role model. Okay. Well, I, I admire you. Thank you very much. Um, one of the key aspects of what I refer to as the gift, because the gift covers lots of very salient things for people. It's not just the power of the mind, but it's also about breaking down what it means to be more present, um, being in the moment, those three words in the moment that I've witnessed a lot of people struggle to achieve. They're either trying to future-proof everything or have still issues from the past. Um, I, I read a really good analogy that it's like the gas on a car and people are often just full pelt gas and a pedal down, just outright going hell for leather in life. And they don't use, they don't know where the brake is. And I believe being present is the brake. You just to yeah. take pause, appreciate what's happening in the here and now. So what I'd love to know is what your version of being present is and, and how it helps you? It's quite a tough question, really. I, I, I struggle sometimes to remain in the present. And I feel like that could be the case for a lot of people. Um, for me, being in the present is important. And I will try to, uh, I try to remain in the present uh, as, as often as I can. And sometimes I do find myself slipping away and pondering over the past and, worrying about the future, wherever it be, you know, my next opportunity, wherever it be, my next, uh, when my next break will be, when the money needs to, you know, but I ponder a lot about my disability and what will the future will be. Um, but it doesn't help you. You know, you sit there and you worry about this and you worry about what may be and you have no clue what is going to present itself in your future. You know, tomorrow could be the day that that mystery treatment gets created for you and a lot of the pain and misery that you feel goes away you know tomorrow could be the day where the the, the role of a lifetime pops up for me that one email that i've always waited for comes through and and then a lot of the worries that i have you know are now non-existent you know i don't have to worry about can i pay my rent in six months time uh you know i don't worry about 
wherever I'm able to to achieve whatever I have on that bucket list that I want to achieve. You know, it's all about remaining in the present because pondering over the future does nothing to help you in that moment. Um, of course, you know, if, if you have prospects that are to happen in the future, then it's, that's okay because you can, you can, you're in the present when you're striving to achieve those. And that's, and that's perfectly acceptable to be pondering over your future if you know that you've got something set out for you. If you're worried about the future just because, then really, like it comes back to what you said earlier about being on autopilot and being on standby. It, it doesn't do anything for you. It, it's, it's not healthy for the mind to sit there and ponder over what may be when you've got a lot going for you in the moment that you're forgetting about. Yeah, and I try and... I've got a 12-year-old son. He's called Felix. And um, when he's having a, the odd anxious moment, um, I tend to try and tell him that 95% of what he worries about will never happen. And it probably yes. is even higher than 95%. Yes. yes. Um, and there's an expression I use, and it's one of my gifts for listeners today, is just this the statement to yourself, everything is always working out for me. Just to halt your mind. Just pause, hit that break. Everything is always working out for me. Just to... Just stop the mind going into fret mode. Um, so going into more about being present for you, what, what makes you most pleased to be alive? Um, my, my daughter, having a, having a family. That's, it's, it's what the one thing out of everything that I've done in my life that I am appreciative of most i'm very appreciative of a lot in my life i'm very very grateful for all of the opportunities that i have have come across and, and what i have achieved but as a child i knew that one day i wanted to be a dad mm. i knew that i wanted to have a family i wasn't at all sure if it was possible um you know and becoming a becoming a teenager you start to think more about girls and you know I wasn't sure if there would be any you know anyone out there who would want to be with me because I'm in a wheelchair mm. you know I always knew that my daughter or my son will have a 50-50 chance of having the same disability as me um and I didn't know if anyone would want to take that risk with me you know do they want you know are they going to knowingly have a disabled child with me so there's a lot of things that I, I i worried about you know being the case and as i grew older realized that that wasn't something to worry about um and and becoming a, a dad has single-handedly been the greatest moment of my life um and just every, every single day i look at my daughter and i can't believe that she's mine because i just it's such a an incredible um thing to happen in your life and anyone who gets to experience becoming a parent you know you will know that it is just uh an incredible moment yes and uh that little lady in question is called daisy um she is. um it, it does parenthood does open your eyes doesn't it it forces you to have a wider vista on the world but also uh on a micro level appreciate the small moments because that child doesn't just come out and you know that they're then they need you and therefore you you have to put things away and maybe some of the selfish selfish 
time-consuming activities that were your your day-to-day before being a dad and and actually look after someone else by looking after someone else it helps you of course no i mean i i uh, you know a lot of who i was before having a child before becoming a dad um there are aspects of my life that I've given up, of course, to become a parent. And I wouldn't change any of it for the world because ultimately what you have you know, given up on in your life or what you've left behind um, doesn't outweigh what you've gained, which you know, is, is the love of a child and, and becoming a parent. So, yeah, I, I've, I've, I've definitely grown up leaps and bounds through becoming a parent and had to take on new responsibilities and, you know, really become an adult and like you said earlier i'm only 22 years old so a lot of my friends are out there at uni and they're partying hard and, or they're traveling around thailand and you know and i'm not doing any of that i'm i'm here at home changing nappies and feeding babies and <laughs> and i wouldn't have it any other way because ultimately that's that's what i've strived for and, and that's what i've achieved yeah um well as i said i'm a huge admirer of you of yours is there Thank you very much. one daily habit or routine that's contributed to your success as an adult or as a father? There's something that I do every single day. I, I, I Nearly every single day. I sort of do it when I feel I need it. But then again, it became a habit. So you end up doing it by habit rather than by when you need it. But I always, if I feel a little bit overwhelmed, if I'm not having such a great day, perhaps, you know, mentally, I always find it helps to take a second that's what i call it taking a second and it could you know it doesn't matter where you do it it could be in your bedroom it could be at work it could be in a coffee shop doesn't matter but sometimes i sit there for a moment and i think about everything that i have achieved i think about where i am in my life at that moment and even though you know it all in the back of your mind sitting there taking a moment of calmness and appreciating what you've got, who you are, why you are the way you are, what you've got going for you in the near future, how close you are to achieving the goals and the dreams that you are striving for. Mm. All of these things are, are incredible and, and they need to be thought about. And so for me, every single day, I take a moment, maybe a minute or two, And I just think about what I've done, think about what's coming up, who is in my life that I appreciate most. And maybe send them a text, you know, or give them a call, tell them you appreciate them, tell them how, you know, I remember that time when we went traveling there and it was such a great, you know, we had such a great time and you relive happy moments. And sometimes it's, it's important to do that. It's important to take that moment and just appreciate it. Great. And that, that gratitude piece, and it sounds like you're hardwiring it also just to a bit of contemplation and even meditation because you're doing some breathing probably at the same time. Yes. That's actually, yes. Um, without putting a label on it, is actually brilliant for you uh, and anyone just to have that moment of pause and reflection. So well done you because that that's going to serve you well. And I'm glad it's a habit because it, I see these sort of meditative habits um as being something you should do uh, fix what you know fix the roof while the sun is shining rather than wait for the big curveball and then start it up it's a daily practice yes 
Now, this podcast is called The Gift, and I always ask my guests uh, as, a, as a closeout, what gift in the form of advice um, or even a quote from someone you've, you've picked up along the way, what gift you'd like to offer the listeners? What gift I would like to offer the listeners? I, I, I'm, not a, I'm not full of, of motivational quotes and inspirational quotes to offer. But as I mentioned earlier, I feel it is, is very much important to appreciate what you've got as opposed to pondering over what you don't. Mm. And I feel like a lot of people could, could gain a lot from, do, from, from taking that on board in their lives and doing that. You know, if you have goals, if you have aspirations, you know, if it's a job that you really hope to achieve, if it's a country that you really want to travel to, if it's, if it's a car that you really want to buy, whatever it may be, big or small, if that's your aspiration, then don't let anyone else tell you that it isn't. You know, there are plenty of times in my life where I wanted to achieve something, where, be it, you know, I wanted to uh, compete in a certain race when I was an athlete, whether it was to set a course record that hadn't been broken in 10 years. I had these aspirations and there were people around me who tried to tell me that I weren't going to achieve it. And, I, you know, there are moments when I started to believe that I couldn't. And you, you have to snap back into reality and believe that you can again. And you keep trying, you try, and, and there's, no, there's no problem with failing. A lot of people believe once they've failed once, that's it. But there, I don't consider failing as a complete end to what you're trying to achieve. It's a minor setback. Think about it as a minor setback. If you don't achieve something once, you try again. And you keep trying until you've achieved it. And all those things that I wanted to achieve when I was younger that I was told wouldn't, I have now. And I'm very appreciative that I was able to keep myself going. And no one else kept me going other than myself. I had to sit there and, you know, take a moment, as I said earlier, appreciate what I've got. And appreciating what I've got helped me achieve more. Yes, and I'm sure you can understand, Jack, that uh, the most important person you'll ever speak to is yourself. Definitely, you know, it's it's. It, I, I couldn't I couldn't agree with you more on that. You know, I've had plenty of conversations with myself to help myself realize that uh, that it isn't all big and bad and grey out there in the world. It is that you know the grass is greener on the other side. Is an expression that I have struggled to uh, have struggled to accept over the years, but again. Like you said, you are your, your, you are your biggest enemy. You are your biggest friend. You are your, your biggest critique. And it's important to, to embrace yourself. It's important to listen to yourself, listen to other people around you who tell you that you are not able to do these things. Because shutting them people out isn't always a good thing. You know, there are people out there who will set, who, who are sort of, you know, they're destined for you to fail. They don't want you to achieve what you're going to achieve. Mm. And it's important to listen to what they have to say, to take it on board, to give you that motivation, that extra inch just to achieve it. Yep. Um, and and that's, that's important, you know. Don't focus on these people, but also don't shut them out because they're your inspiration to do it. Well, that's 
amazing advice and one that I certainly am getting a lot from and hopefully um, those that are listening. To use uh, actor or acting parlance, that's a wrap. Sorry, that's cringy. Um, but <laughs> I wanted to ask you, how if people wanted to reach out to you, um, they wanted you to be part of um, their life, uh, whether it be work-wise, um, uh, in acting, how how can people get hold of you? Social media. What would you what would you advise them to do? Yeah, social media. Um, I, I'm most prominent across Instagram. If anyone has Instagram, I find that uh, Instagram is probably one of the greater social media sites because I'm able to depict my life through pictures, and then people get to see the wheelchair and see my daughter, as opposed to just hearing about our adventures via tweets and Facebook posts. So my Instagram is just very simply my name. It's at Jack Binstead. Um, I do have, I have, I have a Facebook account, so you can add me across there. Happy to answer any questions people have further and, and even just give some advice or just a friendly hello. It's whatever you require. But okay. um, yeah, and I, you know, if I, and I have an email as well. So if anyone wanted to just email me over any questions they have, it's, it's jackbtv at gmail.com. Anyone wants some advice, uh, I'll just send over an email. I'm happy to answer. Great. Uh, well, I'm super pleased that you've been part of my show. It means a lot to me. Me too. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Well, um, never say never. So let's maybe even get you back because you, you've got more to share. And um, it means a lot. So thank you. No worries. I'm waiting for that phone call, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> we shall always be in touch, my friend. Of course. Um, now, um, so the gift, uh, as I referenced at the top, it's to help people deal with um, adversity, stress, negativity. Um, you can contact me, Tim Watton, by that name, on Twitter or Instagram or on Facebook. Uh, do reach out if you want to give me feedback, but also... Should you have any needs about one-to-one -one support or um, fancy learning more about the gift in a public environment. So thanks for your time. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Jack. He's a good man. And, I'll, and as I always say, as I leave the podcast, yours cup half full. Thank you.